So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. For those of you who aren't here every week or aren't just sure what's going on, we were preaching through 1 Peter and we completed that. And now we're doing four sermons on various conversions in the book of Acts. And then after that, we have a, a roadmap, so to speak, to preach a couple sermons on church officers, and then we'll dive into the book of 1 Samuel after that. But this is the second of the four conversion stories and acts that we're looking at. So while you're flipping there, I'm going to list an event for you. And when I say the name of the event, what I'd like you to do is notice the first descriptions, the first words that pop into your mind. The event is the GOP presidential debate. Now, I watched this debate, the most recent one, this past Wednesday night, and I'll summarize it by saying, wow, it was painful. Uh, here are some of the descriptions that I thought of when I think about that debate. Political, contentious, divisive, fierce, powerful, and least but, last but not least, argumentative. Now, here are two words that I guarantee did not pop into any of your brains when I mentioned this debate. Grace and mercy. Now, some of the people on that stage are professing believers, but grace and mercy are not common terms in government or political arenas. And the reason for that is, by and large, our government is a very worldly institution. Now, the candidates had some great ideas for how to handle things, but those two words were not mentioned anywhere in any of their answers. And the truth is that nothing is ever going to be truly transformed without the knowledge of the grace and mercy of God. Understanding that he has been gracious and merciful to us in Christ is the motivation, it's the driving force behind a changed life. So without that knowledge, you're going to live just like the world. And it is the reality of grace in Jesus that makes the church and Christians different from the world, just as the lack of that reality leads to sin, failure, and being lost in the world. In other words, we need the grace of God in our lives daily. And that grace is the only thing that will lead us to salvation and faith. So here's the thesis or the proposition for the sermon. Because God is merciful, you must believe in Jesus. So with that introduction, let's read Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you for this account. We thank you for the rich hope we see in it. We thank you for the, the grace and the mercy that you showed to this jailer and to his family. And that you used Paul and Silas to spread that message of the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray as we walk through this passage that you would impress upon our hearts the beauty um, and the significance of your grace and mercy to us through Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So before we dive into our points, it would be wise to make sure we understand exactly what's going on here in Acts. So we did read it in our scripture reading. Uh, but still, you could ask the question, why are Paul and Silas in a Philippian prison? Well, normally in the book of Acts, if someone is in prison, it's because they were put there for preaching the gospel. And this situation is no different. Back in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter, Lydia heard the gospel from Paul and Silas and believed. Then she was baptized along with her entire household. Right after that, this demon-possessed slave girl starts following them around and shouting to everybody that they were God's missionaries sent to share the gospel. That doesn't sound too bad at first glance, right? Well, she kept doing that for several days, we're told. Can you imagine someone following around chanting that for several days? I think it would start to get to you. And even Paul eventually got fed up with this unwanted herald and became greatly annoyed, as the text says. Now, most people, when they get greatly annoyed, they just yell or they find a way to escape that situation that's annoying them. But Paul is not like most other people. He instead casts out the demon in Jesus' name. Amazing, right? But that created a problem because the owners of this slave girl made a lot of money because of her demon possession. So her freedom from a demon meant something for them. No more money. Therefore, they took Paul and Silas before the authorities. They accused them of insurrection, enticed the crowds to attack them and beat them, and then they threw them up into prison, in the inner prison, under the security of this jailer. So wrongly accused, beaten, and locked up, Paul and Silas settled in for a very unpleasant stay at the jail inn. And this is where the text for this morning picks up. So we've got three points to walk through, and the first point is hope lost looking at verses 25 through 27. So I'm just going to ask you a question. If you were beaten and locked up in prison, what would your demeanor be like? Most of us would probably be licking our wounds and trying to sleep off that beating, hoping we will get out of prison soon. Now, my guess is also that very few of us would be in a good mood. But now enter Paul and Silas, the weirdos. In verse 25, we are told that they were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, in this text, it's going to be full of imagery, of contrasts, of parallels and ironies, of which this is the first. Define all normal human logic. These disciples of Christ were worshiping. The word for singing here is specifically used for joyful songs of praise to God. In other words, they're Outward predicament did not match their inward state of being worshipful. They sat in a dark prison in chains. And yet there was a great light burning within them. So if you go all the way back to Acts 5, other disciples had been arrested as well for preaching Christ. And then they were brought before the Jewish council. And Acts 5.41 says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 
Those disciples, too, had been beaten and brought before authorities for preaching Christ, and yet they left rejoicing. And now in chapter 16, Paul and Silas had the same response to suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, it's also important for the story for us to understand that they were praying and singing out loud for all to hear. They weren't praying or singing silently or even in hushed tones. Everyone around them, including the jailer, was able to hear what they were saying. And we don't know exactly what they were singing or what they were praying, but we do know that it was saturated with the gospel. And that's going to be very significant as we move on. So in verse 26, we see the first of three miracles in this passage. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that there was a great earthquake. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have the materials or building codes that we have today to make buildings somewhat earthquake resistant. It was the middle of the night, and everybody was indoors, asleep, which is the last place you want to be in the middle of an earthquake. What we also see is that this is no normal earthquake. It shook the foundations. But instead of destroying buildings and burying thousands in their sleep, This earthquake opens prison doors and removes shackles off of prisoners. Does that sound like a normal earthquake to you? I'm not familiar with any like that except for this one. I don't know of any natural disaster that releases shackles from a prisoner's wrists or ankles. But this act of God released all the prisoners and opened their cell doors. Now, if you open the doors of any normal prison and remove all of the prisoners' restraints, what are they going to do? They're going to be gone in a blink of an eye. The earthquake just woke up the jailer who was asleep, and he immediately goes to check on the prisoners. And we know, because the text tells us, that it was very dark. But there was just enough light to see that all of those prison doors were open. And his mind went straight to the expected, the normal outcome of such a situation. And that outcome was not good news for this man. All of those prisoners were especially under his charge. And he even got special instructions about not losing Paul and Silas. If he lost them, the penalty was going to be very severe. In the end, there was no way he was going to escape being put to death by the Roman government for losing their prisoners. And worse still, the treatment he would have received before his execution would not have been pleasant. He'll be beaten, he'll be tortured, and then in the end he will be killed. And you can really see how severe this penalty is going to be based on this man's reaction to these events. The thought of what was going to happen next was so frightening that he immediately decided that suicide was the best way out. Notice he didn't even go to the jail cells to double check and make sure the prisoners were actually gone. His hope was already at rock bottom. And in his mind, there was nothing left to be done. It was over for this man. And yet, it is at rock bottom that the Spirit so often works in powerful ways. So let's go to the second point. That's hope promised in verses 28 through 31. So in the midst of the darkness, as the jailer stood with sword drawn, turned on himself, there was a flash of hope that stopped him in his tracks. Out of the gloom comes the voice of Paul. And whether there was just enough light for Paul to see what the jailer was about to do, or this was another miracle, I'm not really sure. But regardless, the prisoner, 
who had been beaten and imprisoned by this jailer just hours before, called out, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Most prisoners would have considered that jailer an enemy and would have been happily rid of him so they could make their escape. Why would you try to save your captor instead of making a getaway? But instead, hope and love showed forth in mercy towards this former enemy. And so it was that there was a spark in the darkness that changed everything. There was a second miracle that night. None of the prisoners had left their cells, despite being completely capable of making a clean getaway. And so the jailer was not guilty of failing his duty. There can't be any punishment for a failure that hasn't occurred. Now, Paul and Silas not escaping, that makes a little bit more sense if you look at the entirety of the passage. But what is astounding is that none of the other prisoners left their cells. So why were they all still in their cells? Well, ultimately, we can only praise God for bringing about this event, for, bring, for performing this miracle of mercy to the jailer. But proximately, by his grace, it's likely that these men had be, been greatly affected by the prayers and the hymns of Paul and Silas. And so the Spirit of God was clearly working on the heart of the jailer. But what many may miss in this passage is that he seems to be a have been at work in all of the prisoners' hearts as well. Now, there's a big emphasis in our culture and some churches on what's called liberation theology. And essentially, the idea there is that some groups that are oppressed are essentially holy simply because they are oppressed. And the end goal of everything in liberation theology is freedom. It's just about getting freedom from your oppressors. That's really a far cry from what we see in this passage. Because God could have freed all these prisoners if he wanted and set them loose. But there was something much more important going on than their physical situation. Most of these prisoners, like the jailer, were all in a much darker spiritual prison. They needed a miracle to be saved from their spiritual slavery. And it seems that God was working in the hearts of everyone present. Additionally, you have to wonder how the earthquake affected these prisoners. It was apparent that there was a powerful earthquake that did not lead to any of the normal results of an earthquake. And I think everyone present that night needed to feel the presence of the Almighty God among them through that miracle. Paul and Silas needed encouragement and affirmation and an open door for the gospel, pun intended. The jailer needed to understand the power of God, as did the rest of the prisoners. The power and the majesty of God was put on display before these men, and it stopped them all in their tracks. Something supernatural was occurring that night, and they all recognized it. And so the jailer calls for lights and runs straight to Paul. And notice again that he doesn't even go through and check each cell to make sure Paul's telling the truth. He already knew that mercy had been shown to him, and he went straight to the spokesperson of that message. The mercy shown to the jailer drove him shaking to his knees. So just as that earthquake shook the foundations of the prison, the grace of God now shook this jailer. And this is another great irony in the story. The same jailer who had beaten and locked up Paul and Silas hours before now falls to his knees before two prisoners. 
He was supposed to be the head honcho in charge of everything in the prison. But instead, he found himself a prisoner, a captive of God's mercy and grace. And while the jailer sat there shaking on his knees, the third miracle came to fruition. The formerly hard-hearted and cruel jailer asked his prisoners a question. He addressed Paul and Silas as his superiors, asking, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He knew that Paul and Silas had come from God with a message of life and salvation. He didn't yet know what the answer to the question was, but he knew that those men had the answer. Along with all of this, have you noticed the imagery of light in this passage as we've walked through? The amount of light parallels the spiritual events taking place in the heart of the jailer. He began asleep, dead to the world in his sin and rebellion. But through a mighty act of God, he was awakened. But it was not an immediate transition to faith, to full light. What did he wake to? His eyes opened to nothing but darkness around him. And yet with eyes open, he saw that he was as good as blind in that darkness. And the event that awoke him, that earthquake, also signaled his just judgment and death for his sin. So the earthquake and the darkness around him were a picture of his hope in the world at that moment. He had failed in his duty, and he knew it. He, was fallen, he had fallen short. But even then, the picture was not clear to him. And so he pursued suicide when faced with that guilt. But there was that spark of hope at the words of Paul. And as a sense of hope and relief grew in him, so did his recognition of the mercy he had received. And then light was brought in. Even as he went to the source of the voice that offered mercy and hope, his sight became clearer in the light. Darkness was giving way to light because Jesus, the light of the world, was shining on the heart of this Philippian jailer. On that dark night, shaking and kneeling before Paul and Silas, that man was broken by the grace of God. And now shattered from his own pride, from his self-sufficiency and his spiritual blindness, the jailer asked the question, how can I be saved? What must I do to receive the mercy of this mighty God? There must be an answer or he would not have been rescued from death either by his own hand or his superior. So what is the answer? Well, by any normal worldly standard, Paul and Silas would have refused to answer the jailer. He was their enemy and they were his captives. He had mistreated them. He had abused them. If they had remained silent, he would have taken care of himself or been killed by the Roman officers. That seems a just ending for an enemy, doesn't it? But these two men were also unworthy of the grace that had been shown to them. Remember Paul's past? The evil Saul had persecuted Christians and the church relentlessly. After the stoning of the deacon Stephen, the people laid down their cloaks at the feet of Saul, the great persecutor. And yet God showed Saul mercy, transforming the wicked persecutor of God's people into Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If the grace of God were deserved or earned, then it would no longer be grace at all. And Paul did not deserve the mercy that God showed him. If he did, then it would not be mercy and it would not be grace. 
So how could one who had been shown such rich mercy in Jesus deny sharing that same message of mercy and grace with another fallen human being desperately in need of God's grace? He couldn't deny the jailer that same message of peace. And in the text, we see no hint in the text. No hint that either Paul or Silas were the least bit hesitant to answer the jailer's question. In fact, I think we see an eagerness to respond. They knew what the scripture means when it says to seek the Lord while he may be found. They knew the mercy of God personally. And so as ambassadors of God's grace, they wanted to share that grace. So they replied to the jailer, giving him the hope of the gospel. They said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If the jailer wanted salvation, he just needed to trust in Jesus as his Lord. There was no penance to be paid. There was no probationary period of training. He didn't need to clean himself up first or try to earn his salvation before coming to Christ. On the contrary, trying to earn his place would go against the very heart of the gospel message and ensure his damnation. So having already been broken down and prepared for the message through the miraculous events of the night, all that was left to do was to believe in the message. Faith in Christ was the answer that the jailer needed to hear. So the same promise that was true for Paul, Silas, and the jailer stands true for all sinners. Believe in Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. The promise of the gospel was so rich, so complete and full that it extended beyond the jailer as well to anyone in his household who believed. So as Paul and Silas presented this message of hope, there arose a possibility not only for this man to be saved, but possibly dozens of others in his house. The promise of the gospel is always for entire families and for the coming generations. The promise of salvation through faith is carried on through the family. So the question for the family was the same as the question for the jailer. Now that he has received mercy and received the answer to his question, will he lay lay hold of the promises of Jesus? Will he claim the light of the world as his Lord or will he reject the message? For that, we turn to the last point. So point three, hope realized. And this is verses 32 and on. So as we continue, it's crucial that we recognize the message that Paul and Silas gave to the jailer. They followed the same pattern we saw with Philip's message back in Acts 8 last week. They both began with the central message of the gospel that if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. But after giving that most central promise of the gospel, they then moved on to explain the details of how we are saved by faith. And they explain how it is that we live by faith as well. And we see the same pattern in verses 31 and 32. So let's look at this pattern in the text. First, when they say believe in the Lord Jesus, know that this is a command. So often we talk about faith as a possible choice and nothing more. But the truth of the matter is that the scripture commands you to believe. It commands you to obey the gospel. Now, of course, we're still making a choice, but the choice is whether to obey the gospel or reject the command. God is not just a weak bystander offering equal options for mankind to choose between. He commands us to come to him 
by faith. And the gospel command is given in power to mankind. And yet the good news is never presented as blind faith either. You see, once the core message of the gospel was given to the jailer, Paul and Silas expanded upon it. Look at verse 32. It says that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That means they used the scripture to explain, prove, and establish the gospel message that had already been presented. They did not expect the Gentile jailer or his family to already understand how the atonement worked. They didn't assume he knew all about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They gave the hope, the command command to believe, and then explained how it all fit together. Really what we see there is the same pattern that we see in a sermon. God is pleased to work through what we call the ordinary means of grace. He has given us the ministry of the word in order to save sinners and build up his church. Because a sermon is just looking at the scripture in order to explain and apply the truths of the gospel within. God uses his word preached through ordinary means in order to save. Because he could have appeared directly to this Philippian jailer on his own without ever sending Paul or Silas to prison. But instead, he ordained that Paul and Silas would end up in this man's prison in order to share the gospel with him. And this is God's providence over our lives. He is able to use circumstances and imperfect people to bring about exactly what he desires. And the Lord's will in this passage was to use ordinary and extraordinary means to bring a man to faith. The preaching of the word was the ordinary means. While the earthquake and the prisoners remaining in their cells were extraordinary means. So the result of this grand plan of salvation uh, was for this man to lay hold of faith or lay hold uh, to the gospel by faith. And that brings us to another irony in this passage. Because while he did not commit suicide, there was a death that occurred that night. He was about to commit suicide. But because of the work of God, there was a very different sort of death that night. Because as a jailer, as he took hold of the promises of the gospel, his old nature died. Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is hidden there. So as he believed in Jesus, his old sinful nature was put to death. And he was set free from slavery to sin and idolatry in order to go and serve Christ. This death led to the ability to love and serve Jesus as his Lord, opening the floodgates for the love and grace of God in his life. And we see this exemplified in his life immediately as he took two men whom he had beaten and locked up only hours before and he cleans them up. His conversion came with the knowledge of his own sin. In mistreating Paul and Silas. And so he did what he could to show them love. He bandaged their wounds and he gave them food from his own house. In doing what he could to help heal Paul and Silas, we're also seeing a picture of the healing taking place within his own heart. But the message came not only to this jailer, but to his entire household as well. Because of the conversion of this one man, The gospel was brought to an entire group of people. His household could have included his parents, 
siblings, uh, spouse, kids, servants, slaves. And in the ancient Near East, the head of the family determined who the family would worship. That was his leadership role. So by this one man's salvation, potentially dozens of others were able to be baptized into the church and hear the gospel message. And along with this full conversion came the sign of membership in God's church. The jailer and his entire household were baptized into Christ. So just remember, a life that nearly ended in suicide was instead remade into a family of faith. The result of the salvation and mercy the jailer received, it led to joy. Both he and his entire household were recreated by God, and they were made to rest in that mercy and grace. So a night that began with spiritual and physical sleep ends with feasting and rejoicing in the grace of God. Don't forget how the Lord worked to bring this all about. Paul and Silas were falsely accused of being revolutionaries. They were beaten and they were thrown into prison. Most would not call that a good day. And yet it was all part of God's plan to bring this man and his whole household to Jesus. So often we want to see these glorious and these happy conversion stories. And really, much like the Jews who expected to see the Messiah come with an army to free Israel from Roman rule, we want to see amazing top-down transformation in the world. We want to have the perfect Christian leaders who make everything great and fix everything. But more often than not, that's not how God chooses to work. Instead, he loves to work through weakness. He took two men who had absolutely zero control over their situation, And he determined that he would use them as his witnesses. It was not the power or the abilities of Paul and Silas that were key in this passage. Not at all. It was the grace of God working in them so they could be joyful and content when there was not one single earthly reason to be either. It was in their helplessness that God gave them the joy and peace of heart to pray and sing joyful songs of praise. That was the means by which God worked to open a door to the jailer's heart so his word could enter in and produce life where there was only death. And it was there, in a dark prison cell, that the Holy Spirit was pleased to be at work. Never underestimate God's ability to work through your weaknesses. You're an ambassador of the gospel no matter where you go and no matter what you do. So don't assume that you need to be feeling great in order to be a good witness. Clearly, God uses us in all sorts of situations. And he even uses our attitudes and trials to display the hope of the gospel. Rest in and rely upon the Spirit to work in and through you. Rest in God's providence over your life, knowing that he has a plan for every single thing that comes to pass. And pray for the Lord to use your strengths, yes, but especially your weaknesses that you might evangelize. And regardless of your situation, rely on the ordinary means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer. Prayer, scripture, and singing praises to God are the most powerful tools we have in our arsenal. Not even abuse in a dark prison cell can stop 
the hope of God. The light of the gospel, it burns hot and bright. Therefore, you must share it boldly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are unworthy completely of the mercy and the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. We do not deserve it. There's nothing we could have done to earn it. And yet you have shown us mercy where we were unworthy and unwilling to come to you on our own. You broke the sin of our hearts. You broke the old man that we might too fall to our knees trembling before the truth. And yet that's not where you leave us. You don't leave us trembling on the ground, but you pick us up and you build us up by your grace and by your spirit. So Lord, help us to be bold ambassadors of that same gospel message that we ourselves have laid claim to. Lord, if anyone here has not yet truly believed in the gospel, God, I pray that you would work through them that you would work in their hearts to open the door that your spirit might go in, that you would bring them to a knowledge of the truth of Christ and of his rich mercy. Lord, let us all rest in that this very morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.